मैं नरेंद्र दामोदर दास मोदी ईश्वर की शपथ लेता हूं कि मैं विधि द्वारा स्थापित भारत के संविधान के प्रति सच्ची श्रद्धा और निष्ठा रखूंगा मैं भारत की प्रभुता और अखंडता अक्षुण्ण रखूंगा मैं संघ के प्रधानमंत्री के रूप में अपने कर्तव्यों का श्रद्धापूर्वक और शुद्ध अंतकरण से निर्वहन करूंगा दैट वॉज प्राइम मिनिस्टर इलेक्ट नरेंद्र मोदी being sworn in after winning the 2014 general elections it was the first time that his party the bharatiya janata party had won a majority and it was eager to make good on its election promises to tackle corruption so it took the country by surprise when within 100 days of coming to power it chose to amend the judicial appointments process in essence it wanted the government to have a greater role in appointing judges this immediately set off alarm bells in the legal community thirty years earlier a different full majority government led by an equally towering leader indira gandhi had gravely threatened judicial independence The experience of the Gandhi years created a deep and lingering distrust between the government and the courts and it also raised key questions Can majority governments override the courts by amending the constitution How can a healthy separation between the courts and the government be maintained But most controversial of all who should have the final say in appointing judges The government or the judges themselves Welcome back to Friend of the Court I'm your host Raghu Karnad In the next 3 episodes we look at the tussle over these questions Our National Judicial Appointment Commission Bill 2014 as passed by Lok Sabha be taken into consideration Those in favor please say aye. Aye. Those against please say no. I think the ayes have the ayes have the ayes have motion is adopted. For two decades before the National Democratic Alliance passed the NJAC or the National Judicial Appointments Commission Act, judges to the Supreme Court and High Courts were appointed through what was known as the collegium system. The five-judge body in the Supreme Court recommended candidates to the government. The government could either approve the names it received or send them back for reconsideration. It could not, however, reject those names that the collegium returned, nor officially propose its own candidates. This meant that the collegium had the upper hand in appointing 34 judges to the Supreme Court. and 1098 judges to the high courts the full strength in all the country's higher courts the newly planned njac would replace the collegium the njac was proposed as a six member body comprising the chief justice of india the next two senior most judges of the supreme court the law minister and two quote unquote 
eminent persons. It would dilute the judiciary's dominance in appointing judges and, at least on paper, place both branches on an equal footing. Judicial vacancies arise every few months, which means the government would have the opportunity to continuously, even if subtly, exercise its influence periodically through the year. But why would the government seek to exert more control? It's simple. An independent judiciary can be a powerful check on government excess in a democracy. Abhinav Chandrachud, a legal historian, writer and lawyer who has tracked the evolution of judicial appointments, tells us more. The judiciary really is one of the important checks and balances on the will of the political executive as expressed through a powerful majority. So really, if really we have the idea of a parliamentary opposition as one of the checks and balances, we have the fourth estate uh, in the form of a free and vibrant press. And we have the judiciary, one of the most important checks. Uh, of course, we also have the Rajya Sabha, the, uh, the states, which exercise some control over what uh, the Lok Sabha can do when there's a new election. And so these are all the, the various things that any powerful government will want to try and weaken. So the gov any powerful government, and there are, of course, examples of this having been done uh, in our history, will try and want to weaken uh, these checks and balances on the political executive. And what powerful governments will therefore want to do is that they'll want to ensure that the independence of the judiciary is harmed so that it can get its will. And really, that's the reason why any, any government, I'm not talking about any particular political dispensation, would want to ensure that, well, the judges... Um, the power to appoint judges is really uh, given to that uh, government or the government has a, a large say in the manner in which those appointments take place. In short, governments try to control judicial appointments because judges are the final arbiters of the law. To understand exactly what the NDA government wanted to do and how, we need to circle back to the beginning. Articles 124 and 217 of the Constitution lay down the procedure for appointing judges to the Supreme Court and the High Courts. It all hinges on one crucial word, consultation. This word will become the linchpin on which all major judgments related to judicial appointments will turn. The Constitution states that the President must consult the Chief Justice before appointing judges to the higher judiciary. But it does not say if he or she must follow that advice. How did our Constitution framers settle on this word? Here is Senior Advocate Dushyant Dave explaining its importance. Article 124 uses the word consultation, as we all know. And it was debated during the Constituent Assembly and some of the members suggested that please replace this word with the word concurrence. And Dr. Ambedkar rejected it. He said that I am not willing to give that kind of a supremacy to the Chief Justice because I don't know what kind of a man Chief Justice is going to be. He may be a man who has normal frailties of a common man. And uh, I therefore wouldn't want to, you know, uh, give Chief Justice a power of concurrence, a veto power uh, over the executive. 
so he suggested that what i have prepared is the best way forward where each of the organs of the uh, you know state are involved in the process of selecting judges and he expected or rather he hoped fondly that uh, uh, there will be a very meaningful consultation amongst all these organs and therefore right appointments will be made concurrence would have as ambedkar argued given the chief justice a kind of veto power consultation implied a fairer balance on the face of it the constituent assembly seemed to have designed the process giving the final say to the executive but india's first prime minister jawaharlal nehru was keen on building strong democratic institutions and his government did not interpret this to mean that it had the upper hand alok prasanna kumar co-founder of the vidhi center for legal policy tells us more if we see right from the start in 1950 two very healthy conventions were uh, set up by prime minister jawaharlal nehru one very healthy convention was that whoever the chief justice of india recommended the government would accept to appoint to the supreme court and also to the high courts the second healthy convention was that when a chief justice of india retired the senior most judge on the supreme court would automatically become the chief justice of india so the second one was not uncon- uh, uncontested nehru did not necessarily want but because the supreme court judges put up such a fight he acceded to it While the Nehru government had minor disagreements with the court over judicial appointments, friction between the two was brewing on other fronts. The government believed that the courts were sabotaging its social transformation agenda, especially its land reform policies. The government hoped to redistribute private property in order to create a more equitable society. and state governments introduced laws to acquire private property without immediately paying compensation however some landlords and business owners went to court asserting their fundamental right to property and various high courts had sided with them matters came to a head when the patna high court struck down the bihar land reforms act that allowed the government to acquire large tracts of private land and postponed the payment of compensation anxious that the courts were jeopardizing social reform nehru's cabinet saw one way out they decided to amend the constitution to overcome these and other judicial decisions hampering the government's agenda in may of 1951 parliament passed the first amendment to the constitution The amendment shielded land reforms from legal challenges and added caveats to the freedom of speech. This move turned the constitution itself into a battleground between the government and the judiciary. Could parliament simply amend the fundamental rights enshrined in the nation's founding document? The constitution itself held some answers. Under article 13, laws in India cannot violate fundamental rights. However, Article 368 gives Parliament the power to amend the Constitution. So, did this mean that the fundamental rights could be watered down through a constitutional amendment? The Nehru government certainly believed so. 
it used the first constitutional amendment to validate its land reform laws. Laws that would have violated fundamental rights if the constitution hadn't been amended. But these, along with the First Amendment, became the subject of legal petitions anywhere. In two judgments, first in 1951 and again in 1964, the Supreme Court held that Parliament had exclusive and unlimited power to pass constitutional amendments, even if they curtailed fundamental rights. An emboldened Parliament continued to pass further constitutional amendments through the 1950s and 1960s, diluting the right to property. And then, a Supreme Court judgment in 1967 delivered a shock. Alok Prasannakumar takes us through that case. The Golaknath case essentially started off as a dispute about land reform legislation, where excess land would be acquired by government to distribute to landless farmers. But the reason why that case has become very familiar is that it was a 6-5 decision by 11 judges of the Supreme Court, which held that the union government or parliament can never amend the fundamental rights part of the constitution. That was the main and important finding when the Golaknath judgment came out. Here was the first time a court in India had said that there are limits to the parliament's power to amend the constitution. And that is what literally set the cat among the pigeons. The Golaknath ruling was a departure from the court's earlier position. In essence, the court no longer agreed with the government that parliament could alter fundamental rights through constitutional amendments. This meant they could not be touched at all. By this time, Nehru had died, and the Congress was in disarray. The same month that the judgment came out, 49-year-old Indra Gandhi led her party to a narrow victory in the 1967 general elections. New Delhi and victory for the Congress party in the general election. Morajai Desai decided not to oppose Mrs. Gandhi as Prime Minister. As her deputy, he took his place in the new parliament. Congress President Kamaraj approved the decision, knowing that, with a much-reduced majority, the party will have its work cut out. Indira Gandhi needs the loyal support of all its members, as Mr Desai emphasised, if Congress is to remain in power. Mrs Gandhi realises that only by resolute government can India solve the problem of an enormous population beset by widespread famine. Initially derided as a Gungi Gudia, or a mute puppet, India's first woman Prime Minister adopted a raft of hardline socialist policies. And like her father before her, that put her on a collision course with the courts. The Golaknath judgment meant that Gandhi started her term on the back foot. But she was undeterred, and her government was on a mission to implement its agenda. Two reforms proved controversial. The first was in 1969, when Parliament passed a law to make way for state control of 14 private banks. Then, the next year, the President, on the government's advice, issued an order to effectively end the system of privy purses, or payments that the government made to former Indian royals. 
Both moves were challenged in the Supreme Court for violating the rights to equality, freedom and property. Here's Kumar on what happened next. So you had two fairly upset sections of the elite in India, namely the former princely uh, state rulers and the shareholders of all these banks approaching the courts and courts gave them resounding victories on both instances. Both measures were struck down by the Supreme Court almost overwhelmingly. But in both these cases, the government suffered very heavy defeats uh, of its very key policies which had been promised and talked about in public. The back-to-back legal setbacks left Indira Gandhi seething. She had already been running a minority government since the Congress party split in 1969. This meant that she didn't have enough support in Parliament to undo court decisions through an amendment. Just nine days after the Privy Purse's judgment, she resorted to the ultimate test of popular legitimacy, elections. The fact is that Mrs. Gandhi didn't have to face the electorate now. Her government's term of office doesn't run out until next year. But in her view, India is at the crossroads and she feels she can no longer proceed without a fresh mandate from the people. With her pallu slung over her head, sunglasses perched on her nose, Indira Gandhi pounded the campaign trail with a simple message. Garibi Hatao, her populist, pro-people platform promised to lift millions out of poverty and take on the smug elite. In the run-up to the elections, she made no secret of her disenchantment with the courts. Her campaign spoke of a committed judiciary, or a judiciary that in her eyes was committed to her specific economic and social goals. Indira Gandhi won the elections with a thumping majority, which she took as a stamp of approval for her radical reform agenda. An agenda that included restoring Parliament's supreme power to amend the constitution that was taken away by the Golaknath case. Within months of forming the government, she introduced two major constitutional amendments. Through the 24th Amendment, Parliament took back the power to amend fundamental rights and curtailed the court's power to review its decisions. The 25th Amendment allowed the government to determine the amount to pay landowners while acquiring their property, which could not be questioned in court. It also shielded the government from legal challenges. As you'll recall, the Golaknath Judgment of 1967 arising out of a property rights case, had explicitly forbidden Parliament from amending fundamental rights. Indira Gandhi's huge margin in the 1971 elections gave her the required strength in Parliament to overcome that judgment. Alok Prasannakumar tells us more. These were amendments made in response to the Golaknath case, where the idea was to try and limit the scope of what the judiciary could review about land reform legislation. I'm simplifying, of course. There is much more technical detail, which I don't want to get into. 
But very simply, the idea was to narrow down the scope of judicial review and in some cases do away with it entirely to say no court can look at the constitutional validity of certain kinds of legislation. Land reform laws were already the subject of many legal petitions and the 24th and 25th Amendments were bound to crop up in courts. In 1970, a year before they were passed, an unassuming Kerala godman called Keshavananda Bharati had approached the Supreme Court. Alok Prasannakumar tells us about his petition. That gentleman himself had very little to do with it. Uh, he was actually this pontiff, a seer based in Kerala, part of whose land had been acquired by the Kerala government under land reform legislation. He wanted to challenge that uh, part of the monastery's land and so on had been challenged. So you have someone uh, who happened, it's not as if he aimed to challenge that provision of the constitution, who happened to sort of be in the right position in the cause list of the case, so the case is identified with him. Uh, in filing the challenge against this law, challenge was also made to three amendments to the Constitution of India. The three amendments in question were the 24th, 25th and the 29th. The 29th amendment was meant to shield changes to the Kerala Land Reform Act from court intervention. The government passed the amendment in June 1972, while Bharati's challenge was waiting to be heard. Leading lawyers and constitutional experts like Nani Palkiwala believed that Bharati's petition could potentially reopen the debate on Parliament's amendment powers. The government too had its own expectations from the case. It hoped that the Keshavananda Bharati petition would override Golaknath and legitimize the 24th and 25th amendments. This would allow the government to carry out further constitutional amendments even if they brushed up against fundamental rights. What guarantee did the government have that the court would side with it? The government was playing the long game. In 1971 and 1972, there were nine vacancies for judges in the Supreme Court. With a momentous case looming, the government began to take an active interest in appointing judges. A total of nine judges were appointed in 15 months, from July 1971 to October 1972, in a mad flurry of activity that historians say had never been seen before. The government was confident that some of its appointees would form part of a bench and swing the case in its favour. Alok Prasannakumar tells us more. After the term of Chief Justice of India, Hidayatullah, you have Justice S.K. Sikri take over as Chief Justice of India. One convention changes, which is it is not just the Chief Justice of India whose uh, recommendations become judges of the Supreme Court. The Union of India also starts to assert itself in the appointments process. The government started saying, if you're going to suggest some people, we will process it only if you accept these other people. And Usually in the past, the names would originate from the Chief Justice of India. The Chief Justice of India would say, I want X as a judge. Now it would be accompanied by the government saying, we don't have a problem with X, but why don't you consider Y also as a judge? 
from what we know of the records, both the judiciary, the, the Chief Justice of India, and the government had their way in this. On the 31st of October, 1972, a 13-judge bench started hearing the Keshavananda Bharati case. Nani Palkiwala led the arguments for Bharati alongside newly appointed senior advocates like Anil Divan and Soli Sorabji. Pitted against them was Attorney General Niren De for the centre and the legal giant H.M. Sirvai for the state of Kerala. Arguments went on for 66 days before a bench headed by the Chief Justice of India in courtroom number one. The court had to decide on a key question. Did Parliament have the power to amend fundamental rights? And if it did, what were the limitations? What was at stake was the future of fundamental rights themselves. The history-making case dominated daily headlines. Newspapers carried detailed stories of the complex arguments of both sides. The nation was hooked. Even stars like Dilip Kumar and Simi Garewal visited the courtroom to watch the arguments. Drama dogged the case right till the end when one judge, Justice Beg, was hospitalized and the Chief Justice was on the cusp of retirement. Given the uncertainties, lawyers nervously wondered if the case would have to be argued from scratch before a new bench. Eventually, on April 24th, 1973, the court delivered a split opinion of seven to six. The majority broadly upheld the validity of the 24th, 25th and 29th amendments. In doing so, it basically overruled the Golaknath judgment, saying that Parliament did have the right to amend any part of the Constitution, including fundamental rights. This might have seemed like a victory for Indira Gandhi, but the court didn't stop there. Even though it declared that Parliament could exercise its amending power, it drew a hard line. Parliament couldn't touch some basic features of the Constitution. Thus emerged the Basic Structure Doctrine. Alok Prasannakumar explains. So what the Basic Structure Doctrine said was, and this is, makes it even more complicated, it said that there are parts of the Constitution which you can amend, but you can't get rid of completely. And they refused to list out exhaustively. It's not like they said articles X, Y, Z, A, B, C, you cannot amend. It was, these are broad ideas that you can't take out of the constitution. So for example, parliamentary democracy, you can't take out of the constitution. Uh, judicial review, you can't take entirely out of the constitution. You can't uh, take you know various other features of the constitution out of it entirely. The judgment defined the basic structure by in fact not really defining it at all. It did not list every possible aspect that the doctrine could embrace. Abhinav Chandrachud explains. So what was the basic structure was something really for a future court to tell us. And over the years, we have some idea of what falls within the basic structure of the constitution. We know that the concept of separation of powers is within the basic structure of the constitution. We know that secularism 
is a part of the basic structure of the constitution as a result of the bomai judgment in the future the keshavananda bharati judgment would become the bedrock of constitutional interpretation including as we shall see in the national judicial appointments commission or the njac case the basic structure doctrine potentially made the supreme court the most powerful court on earth this was the first time that a court anywhere in the world asserted its power to review constitutional amendments but in the immediate aftermath it triggered a constitutional crisis the judgment was delivered just one day before chief justice s m sikri was to retire no one knew who would take his place convention dictated that the next senior most judge justice shelat should take over but the government had made no such announcement had it been biding its time to see which judges would rule for or against it what the government did next only confirmed this suspicion chandrachud tells us more what happened was that judges who had decided cases against the political executive um they were justice shela thegde and grover who were really in the majority in the basic structure case case decided in 1973 so when these three judges decided against the indira gandhi government they were all in line to be appointed chief justice of india according to the seniority convention and what prime minister indira gandhi did to these three judges is that she essentially superseded them and she appointed a judge called justice an ray who was not in line to be appointed the chief justice of india and the uh, the theory was that well these of course the government didn't outright say that it was because these three judges had decided against them they gave all sorts of excuses they said well these three judges will not have a sufficient tenure in office and so on justice an ray had thrice ruled in favor of indira gandhi's government in major verdicts he was in the dissenting minority in both the privy purses and bank nationalization cases where he wrote opinions agreeing with the government's positions and now in keshavananda bharati he sided with the government once again it would not be for the last time meanwhile indira gandhi's problems in court were far from over on 12th june 1975 the allahabad high court set aside her victory in the 1971 general elections finding her guilty of electoral malpractice as calls for her resignation grew louder an insecure indira gandhi lashed out on june 25th president fakhruddin ali ahmed declared a national emergency citing unrest in the country the president has proclaimed emergency this is nothing to panic about but there were very real reasons to be afraid on june 27th 1975 the right to equality the right to life and liberty and the right against preventive detention were effectively suspended by the president on june 29th 1975 the government amended a draconian preventive detention law to allow authorities to detain people without providing a reason 
prominent opposition leaders, including Muraji Desai, J.P. Narayan, Atal Bihari Vajpayee, and L.K. Advani, were arrested under these laws, along with many other political activists. The legality of these arrests was challenged in various high courts, and the petitions eventually wound up in the Supreme Court. The questions before the court were simple. Did the president have the power to suspend the fundamental right to life and liberty during an emergency? Did detainees have the right to challenge their arrest during an emergency? A five-judge bench, headed by Indira Gandhi's controversial appointee, Chief Justice A.N. Ray, heard the case for 37 days. Alok Prasannakumar tells us more about the speculation in the run-up to the hearings. This was a case which featured the then five senior most judges, along with the Chief Justice A.N. Ray, Justice Khanna, of course, Justice Beg, Justice Chandrachud, and Justice Bhagwati. If you see accounts of the case, a lot of lawyers feel that we've got a fair bench. We've got a fair bench. We think at least three of them, at least three of them, which is Bhagwati, Chandrachud, and Khanna, are sufficiently pro-human rights to accept the awfulness, the awfulness of, you know, saying that, uh, entire uh, habeas corpus gets suspended. There's no one has any right to move any court uh, for detention or even literally outright murder by the police uh, during the emergency. Surely this shouldn't go that badly. But it did. In a four to one opinion, the bench headed by Justice Ray sided with the government and against the people. The majority held that citizens do not have the right to challenge their detention when the right to life and liberty is suspended during an emergency. Justice H.R. Khanna was the sole dissenting judge. He held that a citizen had a right to trial even if the state had suspended fundamental rights. His brave opinion proved costly to him. Alok Prasannakumar explains how. In his own autobiography, Justice Khanna says that I basically told my family, I've just written a judgment, it's going to cost me my chief justiceship. He had seen what had happened to the other three judges, but he chose to do it nonetheless. And yes, the government refused to make him chief justice. He was superseded in favor of Justice Big, uh, and he resigned, obviously. So this is the second time that that convention was violated to some extent. As we saw in the Nehru years, clashes between the courts and the government were not new. But previous governments had rarely allowed their disagreements with judges to spill over into the appointment process. That changed with Indira Gandhi's vengeful move to sidestep three senior judges to appoint Justice A.N. Ray as Chief Justice. The delicate balance of power between these two branches was disturbed once and for all. एक शांतिपूर्ण क्रांति हुई है लोकशक्ति की लहर ने लोकतंत्र की हत्या करने वालों को इतिहास के कूड़ेदान में फेंक दिया है और श्रीमती इंदिरा गांधी हार गई 
That was Janata Party leader Atal Bihari Vajpayee addressing a public meeting shortly after the 1977 elections. Indira Gandhi had abruptly ended the emergency, providing no reason, and called for elections where she was defeated by the Maraji Desai led Janata Party. This government was short-lived and Indira Gandhi returned to power in 1980. The memories of the emergency would continue to haunt her fresh term and keep the tensions between the government and the court alive. As we'll see in the next episode, Indira Gandhi's final attempt to stifle the judiciary eventually succeeded. But the Supreme Court would not take this lying down. Join us in the next episode as we explore how judges began appointing judges through a mysterious and secretive process. Until then, I'm your host, Raghu Karnad, and this is Friend of the Court. Friend of the Court is a project by the Anil Divan Foundation in partnership with the School of Law, Governance and Citizenship at Ambedkar University, Delhi. Thank you to the guests on this episode. Abhinav Chandrachud, Alok Prasannakumar and Dushant Dave. The team at Anil Divan Foundation and Ambedkar University, Delhi includes researcher and fact-checker Vipin Mittal, researcher and scriptwriter Ramya Boddupalli, script editor Bhavya Dore, advisors Lawrence Liang, Ranveer Singh, Sham Divan and Vivek Divan. Production by Made in India.